0: going to be a a kind of convoluted path that we're going to get to New York because one thing I'm interested in is the kinds of uh, connections that are made around the world between places and so I'd like to start with these two images and what I'm particularly interested in is the kind of connections that the mind makes between these two images it's almost as if the mind cannot help but form some form of narrative, some form of story maybe this is, you know based in the cognitive capacity for metaphor. And around this room now, we're probably constructing all kinds of different stories in the space between these two images um, about what the connection of this might be. And what's interesting, of course, then, is to think in terms of the commonalities and discrepancies in people's imaginations at the moment. So there's shared themes, there's shared stories that are coming out and those fairly idiosyncratic ones. So what might be the connection of these two images? I mean, does any, anybody here want to say what they thought that connection was? Yeah? That she lost the person in the phone to the world trade for their attacks. OK. So any, any, others, any other connections that were made? Any other stories that were formulated? Um, there is a connection between these images. Um, this is a photograph I took in Kampala, in Uganda, in 2008. And this is Sandra Chagaba, who's an HIV-positive activist. And she's holding a photograph of herself. who <coughs> was taken on September the 11th, 2001. And I took the photograph on the very same piece of grass that she was standing there. So she's standing in the same place as she was standing in, on September 11th, 2001, holding a photograph of herself. So that's it in Uganda. This is obviously September 11th in New York. So why might these images be connected? Why is this title starting off this talk starting off in Uganda, and yet it's called New York Stories? So I'm interested in these kinds of connections that we make um, in a very interconnected world. I mean, the world has always been interconnected, but never perhaps in the same intensity as over the last. 10 15 years. So, Sandra, the reason she was standing on this piece of grass here was she had just given a talk to a group of international HIV activists, journalists, NGO donors, government officials, and so forth. So, she's given a talk. She's given what's known as a, a testimony. And why it's a testimony is that. Um, to bring to life the, the life story behind the statistics of people living with something like AIDS, uh, people are wheeled out to give a testimony. And they're very effective. Um, but the, the problem, is, as with all narrative, narrative can be creative, but it can also become very static. And so we create a life story for ourselves. We all do it. And that, that becomes a kind of canonical version of our life story, which may or may not bear relation to the truth. We all, you know, you read any autobiography, it's full of love. So there's a kind of construction of the self in those things, which may or may not be the way other people see you, for example. And so when you start repeating these stories, such as if you're an activist and you start repeating stories to, to a crowd then you do, they do take on this, this life of their own, this narrative of their own, which, which is interesting, but it, it starts to become fixed. So what I did with Sandra in 2008 when we took this photograph is we decided to walk the journey of her life, take a life journey, chronologically, starting off with where she was brought up and ending up with where she was now. So we walked physically to all these spaces. And she narrated out loud the whole time, into a, a digital recorder. So we walked the story that she has spoken about to the activists. And so this is where the story starts. This is the Nile Hotel um, in, in Kampala. Now, it's a five-star hotel, probably the only five-star hotel at the time. And Sandra's father uh, worked in the hotel. And so Sandra lived on the premises of this hotel. So as you can see, it's a very, very nice house. And when she was about 17 years old, she fell in love with uh, the receptionist at the hotel. And they started courting. Uh, They never slept together or anything like that. They would hold hands and things like that. And then uh, she eloped with him. Um, And she left home uh, informally, which is not great, you know, because really you should leave home with some form of formal ritual, but that didn't happen. So she left home informally. But the thing is, it's like many things in the world, um, things aren't always what they seem. And so the receptionist was not a receptionist. The receptionist was a military spy. Because in a lot of African countries, where the state is not as uh, extensive as, say, here in, in England... Um, it relies upon a network of rumours and spying and things like that uh, in order to um, think about things like security and all those kinds of aspects. So even me, when I go to Uganda, they know exactly where I am. You know, so like when Gaddafi would come, I'd get a knock at 3 o'clock in the morning just checking where I was. And so there'd be someone in my neighbourhood who would be reporting back who I was, uh, what I was doing and the kinds of activities I was up to and so the recep- receptionist was actually a spy and he, what he's doing is he's, this is a, a five star hotel, it's the only one so you've got lots of people coming in and out of Kampala and what he's doing is he's keeping a, an account and record of who's coming in and out so when she eloped she actually eloped to an army barracks and this is the army barracks here and not a very nice place um, and it was shared with three or four other families and this is the place where she caught HIV because this is where the relationship was consummated and Sandra was not happy at all living under the military, in the military barracks or conditions so her and her boyfriend moved out to a local area so you can see it's a slum area, people are cooking outside, there's not much electricity or water in this area and this is where they started a family. Sandra had a young daughter, and um, life was good. And this is basically the testimony that she's giving to, to the donors at, 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 the, um, at, the, at the meeting, um, that we're walking. So one day she is cooking outside, and her boyfriend runs past and goes straight into the bedroom without greeting her, without saying hello or anything. She turns around, she goes into the bedroom, and she sees him, and she says, what's wrong? And she say, he says, I've just been diagnosed with HIV. Um, again, there's a kind of interesting connection there in terms of world events, because when Museveni, the current leader of Uganda, overthrew the previous regime... He was backed in part by Castro and he was backed in part by Gaddafi. And then he had to hold on to a country with basically a a group of Bush Bush guerrillas. And so his soldiers were sent to Cuba uh, for advanced military training in order to allow this. Now, as you probably all know, Cuba's got an amazing medical system. And so... When they arrived, all the soldiers were given tests, and they found that one in three of the soldiers were hiv positive so this is in the mid '80s we 're talking about now, so one in three were hiv positive and Musevenni, who was very loyal to his soldiers, um, saw this as a, a thing that they needed help with, and this is why one reason why in Uganda has been much more positive than many many countries in in its treatment, much more forward-looking, and the infection rates have gone down, or in many places they've gone up, etc., etc. So what happened is that the boyfriend, as part of these routine testings in the military, had gone for a test and found out it was HIV positive. Eight weeks later, the boyfriend is dead. This is the bed in which he died, or rather, this is not the bed he died. The bed he died in was bed nine. But... Um, there was a family there, and me and Sandra didn't want to disturb them, so we took a photograph of bed eight. So now you have Sandra, who's living in a slum. she's got no work, she's got a young child, and she's now got no support uh, financial support or, or anything. And the family of the boyfriend then come to take away the young child, Zam. And this was, a, as you can imagine, this is extraordinarily traumatic for Sandra. Um, and looking back on it now, she can see the rationale why the family took the child away, but that didn't make it any less or any easier emotionally. So the child is taken away, and so here we are on September the 11th, and she's given this life story to people. <clears throat> We've tried to open it up through our walk, and. Um, she hasn't seen her child now for five or six years. And so this is the story she's given. And she comes out of the, of the room in the hotel where the conference was happening. She comes out onto this piece of grass, and she turns left. And somebody else, a young woman from New York who's a journalist, comes out of the other door and turns right, and they bump into each other. So Emily was one of the organizers of the conference. And Sandra, Emily says to Sandra, she says, thanks very much for that, um, you know, very moving testimony of your life. Um, When when I come back next year, uh, let's see if we can get your daughter back. I really hope you can get your daughter back. Um, Because, of course, Sandra hasn't seen her since she was a baby. And um, Sandra says to Emily, thanks very much, but you probably, this is probably the last time you'll see me. And Emily says, why? And Sandra says, it's because uh, I've had some very bad news. My CD4 cell count is down to, um, down to 12. Um, I've lost 30 kilograms. Um, the doctor th- thinks that I probably won't have much longer. And they, they depart. Now, this has happened, if you remember, on September 11th. 2001. Now this has happened around 11 o'clock in the morning Uganda time. So September 11th here hasn't happened yet because it's about an 8 hour time difference and so 11 in the morning would be like 3 in the morning New York time. So 8 hours later, slightly less than 8 hours later, this happens. The planes hit the World Trade Center now, it transpires, and Sange was telling me, that Emily's parents live near the World Trade Center. Um, I later find out that it wasn't that the, her parents lived near the World Trade Center, Emily's father works in the North Tower. And so Emily is now suddenly frantic and she's in the same existential space between life and death that Sandra's existing. So we think of life as being, you know, in Western context, as being, you know, death is something that happens in old age and so forth. Um, and, that, uh, you know, there's things like the contingency of this are not really part of our, of, of our uh, everyday experiences. But suddenly now, Emily, from thinking of a life of security and certainty, is suddenly in the same existential space as Sandra. And the thing is, is it would be difficult enough in those days to make a phone call across Kampala, because Kampala, I think, uh, Uganda has the lowest amount of landlines of any country anywhere in the world, I believe. And it was, you know, when I tried to make a phone call, it was almost impossible to make a phone call just across the city. To make a phone call on September the eleventh, two thousand one, an international phone call to find out if your father's alive or not it was almost impossible. So Emily is distraught, and some of the other women who are part of this conference, some of the Ugandan Af- women, they start chanting and praying for Emily's uh, parents. Um, the next day it transpires that the father I think has gone to the gym that morning and so was not in the World Trade Centre on that day and so the father's alive. Um, So Emily then finds Sandra, tracks her down and says to Sandra um, God has spared the life of my parents because god has saved their life they have a duty to save someone else's life and so they don't know this yet but they're going to pay for your medications to put this in perspective antiretroviral medications which are the medications that were developed in the kind of late 90s and effectively remove traces of the virus in the blood and so you know um things aren't resolved yet, but it seems as though you can now live a, a, a normal lifespan uh, on, on antiretroviral medications. Now, in the late 90s um, and early 2000s, of course, you, in the West you had these medications. So what that meant is that people living in places like Uganda were aware of this cure, as it were, that existed in the West, that they weren't... Um, allowed access to because of their nationality or their economic status or their, their ethnicity. Um, and so there's a strange duality that's going on there in terms of the different possible lives one could have lived in that if the contingency of birth had been different, Sanja would have access to medications. And so on this day of September the 11th, 2001, um, she would be thinking of a life of health rather than anticipating her death and so this is the idea we can't think of experience as anything pure we can think of life experiences in relation to the all the other possible life experiences we could have lived and so again the imagination is coming in there you can imagine a life of health and security elsewhere in the world but because of your national identity your, your maybe your imagination can transcend those borders but your body can't and so to put this in perspective Medications at this time were 800,000 shillings a month and even an eminent professor like Marcus Banks probably would have only earned 200,000 shillings a month. And so it's four times the entire salary of a professor in order to get medication. So it's basically, medications are out of reach for everybody. And again, this is not an innocent price uh, because various countries, including India and Brazil, said they would manufacture medications at cost price you know roughly about 60p a day um, which would make them affordable but you know governments, international drug companies and so forth wanted to maintain their price so they come together and they fight this in the the courts and so it basically means that people all around the world, many people are dying at this time in knowledge of these medications that are kept at a price uh, which is reinforced by uh, a kind of global political agenda. Anyway, but fortunately for Sandra, because of this, she's told that Emily's parents will pay for the medications. Now, what's interesting in this, of course, is if, if Sandra had come out of this door and turned left, she would most likely be dead. If Emily had come out of the other door and turned right, Sandra would most likely be dead. If this had not happened, Sandra would be most likely dead. And so what we're looking at here is levels of contingency, which I don't think we've really addressed very well in anthropology. The kinds of contingencies that shape our lives. So, We're born with the capacity to live many, many different lives, but we only end up living one. I mean, this is something that Clifford Geertz has written about. And those lives are shaped by society and politics and other things, but they're also shaped by the actions we take in the world. And in this instance, we can think of at least three kinds of action. There's that kind of action in which we try to impose a kind of structure on the future. This is an action that we're involved in all the time. So the unknowability or contingency of the future, we try to impose a structure on it. And it can be from something simple, trivial, like whatever you're going to eat for dinner tonight. You know, So in order to, if I'm going to cook uh, pasta, then I have to go to this shop, and I have to go to this shop to get the vegetables in this shop. So you're kind of imposing a structure. Or it can be a much bigger structure about one's career, one's life trajectory, one's relationships, etc., etc., in which you're trying to shape the contingency of the future through your actions. There's a kind of rational choice, rational decision-making process going on. If I need pasta, I need to do this, this, and this. Um, Then there's another kind of action, which is equally prevalent, where we just act without consciously necessarily thinking about it. And many actions in our everyday life are like this. And then retrospectively, we might try to rationalise those thoughts. So... You know, you find yourself in this situation. You think, how the fuck did I get here? And then you think back and it's like, OK, uh, that happened and this happened and I was unhappy because of that and that's probably why I ended up doing... And then, ret- So it's a, it's a similar kind of structure, only retrospectively you're trying to impose a rationality on the world. And this has been written about a lot in, in uh, philosophy, of course, you know, from Kierkegaard's notions that life is something that's lived forward but understood backwards or William James's idea that things like truth and perception or even Merleau-Ponty you know, perception is not co- reality and truth are not coterminous with the moment. They always is- exist further on is the idea. So that we can think of this moment here as having a certain reality uh, and we have a perception of it but then if I go outside and I get run over um, by a bus, suddenly this moment is infused with a kind of, when you remember it, it's infused with, infused with tragedy. And then you find out actually I wasn't run over by a bus, it was a bicycle and I'm fine, I've just got a slight bruise. And then again the, that perception, that reality has changed. So this is the idea that truth and perception don't exist in the moment, they always exist in, in, in some future state. Um, so What happens here is also a third kind of action where you turn right or you turn left, and this has radical, radical consequences for your life. If you turn right, you die. If you turn left, you live. And these are the kinds of actions that we're doing every day as well so that our our lives are shaped by these but again, it's something we haven't really theorised very much in anthropology, how these kinds of contingent actions that have radical consequences for our existence um, take place and how they work. So this is Sandra. So now we're seeing what the, a connection might be. Um, so this is 2008. I took this photograph. In 2010, on March the 22nd, I mean, this is Diner. On 9th Street and 8th Avenue in Brooklyn. And I'm there because I've tracked Emily down and I'm waiting for her. And she turns up and she's just had a new baby, so this is Emily. And I, say, I tell Sandra, I tell Emily Sandra's story and narrative. Because what I was interested in was if narrative is as fluid as we've been saying, then what is Emily's interpretation of these events? Because we know that things like memory is unstable right down to the proteins and molecules in the brain. Every time you access a memory, it becomes unstable. It becomes labile, even so-called kind of long-term embodied memories, and it gets repatterned into the brain in a new emotional context. In the example I just gave, for example, of me being run over, that memory gets repatterned in a different emotional context. In that case, of tragedy and then of relief, or perhaps relief. Um, so um memory's unstable so I'm very interested in this and Emily says well I don't even believe in god uh, so what's happening there why why has Sandra said that is it the contingency of that of those events that she's having to ascribe a kind of fate or religiosity to is she trying to impose some kind of meaning on that on that on the contingency Uh, by appealing to God Um, is that what we're doing also in in anthropology a lot of the time are we trying to impose certain kinds of meanings on very contingent events so Emily said uh, I don't even believe in God and she says but you know what's interesting and she says I've never told anybody this but those African women that were singing and chanting I think they did something I I think they're chanting worked. So maybe Emily's also reaching out for some kind of explanation to make the contingency not contingent but necessary to make it something that is um, that has an explanation and she says, and, and Emily says, and also I don't think we met on that piece of grass, I remember it was on the dining table so that she sat next to me on the dining table and so again, we can see kind of instability of memory there. And then, so you've got these two con- conflicting narratives, but at the level of a kind of structural, in a kind of Levi-Straussian mythical way, this, the structure is, remains. So that in the way that Levi-Strauss you know, would substitute one thing for another in a different way that the structure remains, you have meeting at the, the contingency of sitting next to each other on the dining table is the same as bumping into each other. So structure is the same, but they're remembering it differently. And then, there's a, of course, there's my interpretation. I purposefully have not gone back to my transcripts of, 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 my, of either Sandra or Emily because this narrative that I'm telling you is now taking on its own life. So we've got these three narratives circulating around these events. Um, so now that, we're in, now that we're in New York... Um, I want to take a a, a journey through the streets of New York, which also involves these ideas of turning right and left, in which um, I recreated the walk that somebody did uh, when they were diagnosed with HIV, a guy called Alberto Valesca. And we we did it roughly 20 years to the anniversary of his... um, of his diagnosis. Oh, just to fill you in that what happened with Sandra is that once she got on the medications, her health came back, um, she got her child back, and also in 2004 because of the Global Initiative medications were made available much more wide, wide widely uh, to put, uh, across countries in Africa and other places, and so then um, Sandra was able to get on those medications, and she's is perfectly healthy now. Um, so what we're looking at now is a kind of recreation of the day that somebody went to collect their HIV results. Um, and we we walked this journey three three on three separate occasions and we used three different ways of th- three different kind of media in order to document this journey. So it's me and Alberto, and we filmed it once as a kind of uh, point of view thing. So it's if that person is doing the walk, we documented it in photographs, uh, in which he then was speaking out loud his thoughts, and then um, I, f- I think the third one was when I filmed him um, and and his actions. So we we walk this journey three times now just to give you an idea um, Alberto lives down here on this street here and the HIV clinic is up there on 29th and 9th Avenue so we've got to go from here to there now as we start the walk um, Alberto the one I'm going to show is the photographic version. Alberto is narrating out loud his thoughts and emotions as we are going. And so there's a kind of duality there because he's trying to think about how he felt on that day. So the kinds of emotions and think- and thoughts he was having, but it also is a reflection upon that day from the point of the present because there is no pure access to the past in that way. And so... What, what it's playing upon is, is again, this, this, this idea of a kind of instability of memory. And as, Al, as we leave this building, so now we're leaving Alberto's building, if you can imagine, if you're taking an HIV test, mostly, most times there's a two-week gap. You can have it shorter, but in these days you couldn't have it shorter. But still today, uh, even on the NHS, you would get two, normally get a two-week gap. So basically you go in, you have your blood taken it's tested for antibodies and things and then two weeks later you get the results and so it's a very 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 strange two weeks in which you're living as a liminal being with these radically different futures, basically one of life and in this era one of death Uh, and you don't know which of these futures you're going to live and at some level that future is kind of determined in your body, not fully determined but you know, whatever your body, whether you're carrying the virus or not, that's there, but you don't know which of those alternatives is going to play out. And then two weeks later, you get the phone call, and the clinic says, ah, oh, your results are in, can you come and collect them at, at 1.30? Um, and so they won't give you the results over the phone because you have to receive them in person with a counsellor. So this is the situation that me and Alberto are now working on. So as he's walking to the clinic, we go to the subway station at the end of his road and then we get off at 23rd Street and 8th Avenue, we get out at 23rd and then we start walking to 9th Avenue and 23rd. Now as he's speaking out He is describing the kinds of emotions he felt on that day, the kinds of bargains he was trying to make. Uh, Because of this, Alberto was gay, and because of the attachment of sin to homosexuality, he was no longer a a devout believer in God. But he said, you know, he still had a Catholic heritage. He was part Mexican. And uh, his grandfather was an American Indian, and both his parents were Mexican, but he was brought up in California... So he, he was brought up in a Catholic environment and so as we're walking, he's trying to make a bargain with the Virgin Mary. Uh, if, if I'm not HIV positive, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. In certain moments, he's walking and he is convinced he's going to be HIV positive. In other moments, he's not. There's fear, there's all kinds of emotions mixed up. So there's a very broad assemblage of emotions that he's experiences as he's walking down. So we get down to... 23rd and 9th and if you remember it's on the clinics on like the 29th and because of the way in which um, uh, this kind of rational grid-like structure of New York which came from a map was drawn by a, a surveyor called John Randall in 1811 in which he imposed this grid structure and all roads were numbered um, as we're getting closer to the clinic of course it's 23, 24 25, 26, until we get to the clinic. Now, as we approach the clinic for the first time, Alberto breaks down and starts crying and says, I, uh, this is too difficult for me. And I say, well, let's, 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 let's finish it here. And Alberto says, no, it's really important that we go through with this. He says, because on the day I was actually diagnosed... I purposefully came on my own, even though I was advised to come with somebody else, because I thought, if, I'm, if I am HIV positive, I've got to live with it and cope with it on my own. And so I want to start that process. So Alberta says, we, go th- we need to go through with it. And so we get closer to the entrance, and we go in, and here's the reception. And there's basically four rooms on the ground floor. And one room says um, antenatal clinic, another says travel clinic, another says something else, and one doesn't have any sign at all on, there's no indication what that room is for and that is the waiting room uh, for people who are coming to collect their results from an HIV test, and that's this room here and as we looked into this room, we didn't go in Alberto looks and he says, that that was me 20 years ago those people they are in there that was me 20 years ago and he says, but it's very interesting how the demographic has changed because of course when he went it was mostly gay men that were being diagnosed and now it's a a much broader set of people Um, so Alberto sits down in the waiting room Um, he goes in to see the counsellor, he's told the news that he's HIV positive, he doesn't really understand it, can't process it Um, which is very common Medical diagnosis, um, and then she advises him that he should go to a a, a information and counselling session where people who have just been new, newly diagnosed go to go and get support and help. So he leaves the clinic, and he starts walking back down to Ninth Avenue and Twenty-Third Street. And now, of course, the the kinds of thoughts and inner dialogues that he he, the going on in his mind are very different because now he is HIV positive and so he's thinking well who should I tell you know who needs to know who, who wants to know who, should, who, who won't want to know should I tell my parents or not he decides he's not going to tell his parents he um, thinks about suicide you know should I, you know, should I c- commit suicide is, is, that, is that some you know have I got anything to live for uh, what, what's the future going to hold different set of emotions and we go along and on our walk we go into this sushi place on the corner of 8th and 23rd and the reason is is that on the actual day that Alberto got diagnosed he went, by the time he'd reached this sushi bar he just wanted to deaden all the emotions and so he went in and he sat and he just drank sake didn't eat and this is Alberto here and the reason he's wearing this red and bluish shirt is because he says, I, for, for, for the, the walks we did, is because he wanted to signify the blood that was running through his veins, which, of course, uh, has a strange duality because it's, blood is something that gives you life, but if you're HIV positive, it can also be the thing that gives you death. And so there's this kind of strange duality that's, that's going on. And Alberto gets absolutely drunk. Um... And as he's sitting there, he's looking out of the window at people who are probably thinking about sports, who are thinking, fantasising about a co-worker. And he can't believe uh, that all this normality is continuing uh, whilst he's just been given this news. So... We walk back, and then this is on the second floor of a building on 2nd Avenue, and this is the counselling session. By now, Alberto's completely drunk. He goes into the counselling session and makes a complete fool of himself. He starts rolling around. He starts abusing people. He says, I went in, and the room just felt of, smelt and felt of fear. And I said... I'm not going to live with this disease. I'm not going to die from this disease. Not meaning he wasn't going to die, but he was not going to live a a death already. I'm going to live with this disease. And he stumbles out. And he carries on down Second Avenue until he gets back home. So what I'm interested in in this then is the kinds of um, how social spaces, all social spaces are mediated by realms of inner dialogue and um, thought and expression these very complex amalgams of memory and emotion and so I'd like to show this photograph which places us not just beyond the limits of anthropological knowing but the limits of science itself and I have a very simple question about this photograph which is going to place us beyond the limits of human understanding and that is What are these people thinking? So what is this guy thinking? Or the guy in the white shirt? Or the woman in purple? So this is on the intersection of 23rd and 8th where uh, me and Alberto got off uh, this subway. And I just took repetitive photographs as the crowd moved down. And so we're seeing all these people and there's all kinds of things going on in their life ranging from the trivial to the tragic some people like Alberto maybe have just been uh, dealing with some fundamental existential dilemma so this guy let's, with, with the, what's, what's, let's follow him and let's see if we can work out what he's thinking where is he? there he is So he's right in the corner. What's he thinking as he he comes down? We simply don't know. And so the problem with anthropology is that we're only telling half the story of social life. Um, It may be like in any crowded street, you take five people, one person is thinking whether they left their front door open or if they fed their cat. Another person is... um, watching other people in the streets, another person... I mean, like, if we look to modernist literature, modernist literature has dealt with this many, many years ago, and anthropology hasn't touched it, so you think of, you know, you think of Dostoevsky or something, Raskolinov in Crime and Punishment literally has murder on his mind as he's walking around St. Petersburg looking for somebody to murder. So maybe some of these people have murder on their mind. And so... I went back to New York because uh, I got some funding to track down all the people I worked with who thought they were going to die when I was doing my PhD in the 90s and to find out what, what had happened to them. And um, as I was there, I started off doing this experimental project on, in a dialogue that was kind of inspired by modernist literature. And what I did is I divided the city up into different zones. So like cafes, bridges streets, squares, places where I thought were interesting in terms of the kinds of thought that you have in those places. So the rhythm of walking down the street when you've got stimulation, you know, you're hearing a police siren, um, you're seeing people, you're trying to avoid people, the actual structure of consciousness and thought is very different than, say, for example, if you're sitting in a peaceful square watching, watching the birds and the fountains and things like that. So I divided the city up into all these different zones. And um, I would collect these inner dialogues from random strangers, because what I was particularly interested in is the way in which cities were presented to each other as strangers. Most of the time, even in a relatively small city like Oxford, if you're in the centre of the city, most of the people you're encountering are strangers. What's going on in their life? What kinds of thoughts are they having (laughs) And um, so, for example, in this um, scene here, um, what I did is I would, I would stand up one part of the city, in this case it was Broadway and Houston, and as people walked towards me, I'd say, excuse me, can, you, can I ask you a quick question? <coughs> and usually they would say yes, because as we know, a question is one of the ways in which you can intervene into somebody else's social life. So it's allowed, you can ask them what's the time or how do I get here, etc, etc et and I said it might seem like a bit of a strange question uh, but can I ask what you were thinking before I stopped you and um, they would tell me what they were thinking and I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd explain the project briefly and I'd say this may seem like an even stranger question uh, but can I put a microphone on you and you just speak out the stream of your thoughts and consciousness doing whatever you're going to do anyway. And I was really surprised about the amount of people who said yes. And I collected 100. And so some of these are, can be in 20 minutes long. Some can be an hour, two hours. One guy did it for three days. He really got into it. Okay, so I'll just wrap up with a few comments. Um, so obviously there's no objective independent access to consciousness there's no way of looking inside somebody's head uh, so there's no way of actually finding out what people are thinking and these are obviously subject to self-censorship they're highly performative um, but nevertheless we are getting a glimpse into the kinds of thinking and being that happens in social, any social spaces um, now there's a number of other interesting aspects that we can start thinking about Then, if we think about this material use this this material, one is this the idea that our lived experience of the world is a, you know like if if I think about myself now, the emotions I'm feeling, you know maybe I'm feeling slightly tired because I didn't sleep well last night it's not true by the way, just thinking and then maybe I'm taking a driving test tomorrow so I'm anxious about that but I'm also excited because uh, I'm going to theatre tonight, uh, I'm thinking back to something that happened a couple of days ago, um, plus all the perception, the smells, the sounds, you know, everybody's faces and attention, that is my being. Then to translate that into some kind of linear narrative is a huge reduction. And so what, that's, what, what that is gesturing towards is the way in which speech... Uh, the relationship between language and experience that I think we can start thinking about with this kind of material, thinking about the multimodality of experience and then how that then becomes interpreted. And now that is part of our own thought processes. And whether we're thinking in terms of inner dialogue or introspection, the extent to which we then can describe even ourselves. Now, the other thing that's coming up in me is, is that what's very obvious is that we're not even in control of our own thoughts. So we have, in the first example, you have Meredith walking along, and she's got this piece of news about uh, a friend of hers who's been diagnosed with cancer, and that's consuming her being. And then she's thinking about going to Staples. She needs to buy a Staples station store. And then she looks over and she goes, oh, that used to be a great place to watch people. And she turns into Broadway and sees all the people and thinks, what's this? Um, So that her her thought is constantly moving through all these kinds of trajectories. Then we get Tony, and his thoughts much more staccato. It's less narrative-based. It's kind of repetitive. And again, this indicates that we're not even in control of our own thoughts because we've all been there. We've all had days where somebody said something to us at work and it's and we want to be thinking about something completely different, but it keeps coming back. We don't want to be thinking about that. We want to be thinking about something different, but it keeps coming back and it keeps coming back. And his thing is that, you know, it's repeated, repeated, repeated. His whole walk is about 40 minutes and so he's constantly coming back to this thing. Now the third one, Jim uh, the Doctor from Manchester. We're always in the world, but we dwell in it in different ways. And so he's dwelling much more in terms of a direct interaction with the city. When he's making observations about the people, he's going, walking by, he's trying to understand them. He makes observations about the, the, the architecture. Later on, a taxi goes by and he's playing the Beatles, since so playing Hard Day's Night. And uh, he goes, oh... I remember going to see that as an undergraduate in Birmingham. And he says, who, who, "Who did I go? Who did I go with?" And he goes, Uh 1964. R- 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 Robert Reed." I went with Robert Reed, and suddenly he's thinking about Robert Reed and what happened to Robert Reed, and the fact he hadn't seen him for forty years, and so he's walking along Chinatown in New York, thinking about Birmingham in nineteen sixty-four. And then in the last one, the cafe one, again, I don't know what the hell's going on in there. Because he seems to me... Because one thing I was interested in, I wanted to remain faithful to the idea of not knowing anything about these people, about the fact they were strangers. So I didn't ask them any information, either what's your name, how old are you, what do you do? And uh, so I didn't want to know anything else. Um, and um, he's, he seems to be animating this discussion between these two people. You know, he's sitting in the cafe and he's saying she doesn't love him and he doesn't, you know, all this kind of stuff. So what we're lo- looking at is all these different kinds of thought. Now, it's not as if these thoughts are attached to these persons. These thoughts are all our thoughts. We all have days where our thinking is quite narrative-based. You know, when we're constructing a story, uh, we have days when we have flashbacks, uh, we have days where crap is going on and we want to be and it's just repetitively um, coming back into our mind and we we want to put it out so we're all these people in different contexts Um, and I think as anthropologists unless we get to grips with this, how can we make claims about anything in social life if we're not prepared to put ourselves in peril and venture beneath the kind of uh, the the performative surfaces Um, and I think I'll probably it's probably my time so I'll leave it there